This isn't quite the weirdest game I've ever been asked to ruminate on, but this one was really hard for me to wrap my mind around. And the more I played, the more I was confused. <clears throat> for the record, uh, this is specifically a rumination on two separate things. Shadowrun Returns and Dead Man Switch. And the mere fact that I distinguish those two probably gives away part of why I consider this to be such a weird and unique circumstance. <sighs> this is also probably going to be more me talking about the game than it is about the actual story of Dead Man's Switch in particular, so forgive me on that one. So, before I go into anything, let me go ahead and say that I don't have a lot of history with Shadowrun. I have played Cyberpunk... I have played uh, the original Shadowrun SNES game, and that's about as close as I've ever come. But what I find interesting is that so many of the concepts of this game just slid perfectly into place, and the more I played it, the more I started to realize that that's at least in part because of how well it's presented. I've made a comment recently about a game called Divinity Original Sin 2, which I've been playing very recently. It was very weird, by the way. I went within two days or excuse me, three days, I went from playing Divinity Original Sin to playing this game. That was a bit of a whiplash there. But anyways, I commented on that game that it felt like a game that was made now as if they had never stopped making CRPGs of that variety. And in many ways, I feel the same way about this one, Shadowrun Returns. The thing is, this isn't... <sighs> I, I almost want to say this Aside from the obvious Dead Man Switch, this isn't even a game in the strictest sense of the words, in the same way that Mario Maker isn't a game in the strictest sense of the words. Oh, of course, Mario Maker has built-in levels that you can run around and design, but the whole point is to make your own thing. And that is the overwhelming feeling I am left with with Shadowrun Returns. I did what I can only call a cursory glance of the overwhelming amount of content I found on uh, various sites and, of course, Steam's own thing with regards to Shadowrun Returns modules. And there's a lot there. I don't know the quality of it. I don't have time to check out all that stuff. But that's what I feel like. This whole thing felt like someone made a video game Shadowrun. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, duh, but that's not what I mean. I mean, imagine if someone made Dungeons & Dragons the video game. That's what I mean by that. Not, like, a specific campaign or a specific story like Baldur's Gate or Neverwinter Nights or anything like that. I mean, they made the ability to play Dungeons and Dragons in video game format. And that's a lot of what this this strikes me as. I, I, I don't know how else to put it. I, I, feel, I feel like I'm, I'm failing at properly explaining this, so I'm just going to move on. Let me also say, I do love the concept of Shadowrun, even though this game in particular probably crossed the line for me, I'd say about twice overall. Not in major ways, not in ways that make me hate the game or anything like that, but I do love the concepts of the setting. Because what I'm seeing is cyberpunk, you know, your, your classic cyberpunk uh, concept or setting, pretty seamlessly mixed with magic. And that's what makes it really interesting to me. The fact that it so smoothly blends the fantastical, magical elements with, you know, wireless cyberspace and guns and, you know, the usual cyberpunk megacorporation, etc. aesthetic. And 
even if you don't know a lot about the story of or the, the backstory, the history of Shadowrun, playing through Dead Man's Switch does do a lot of behind-the-scenes exposition. Not behind-the-scenes, wrong term. Let's call it in-the-background exposition. Because as you're going through, very rarely does someone just sit down and say, As you know, there was this thing ten years ago, and the, the Ascension and the Sixth World came in. No, they don't do that. Instead, they just kind of reference it, and based on context, you can kind of figure out what they're talking about. And I like that. It's some good exposition. And it helps to introduce the, for lack of a better term, world, <coughs> excuse me, of Shadowrun to a new player, to someone who's never really gotten into Shadowrun. I found out after I had made these determinations that the guy who actually worked on Shadowrun worked here with uh, Harebrained Schemes in order to make this game. So that explains a lot. Now, <clears throat> next thing I want to talk about... Gosh, I'm, I'm not even sure where to go with. See, I'd love to talk about the setting more, but I don't really have a lot to talk about setting-wise, as weird as that may sound. I mean, yeah, there's plenty of flavor lore there. You know, the world was completely undone by the upheaval, um, the plight of people who are mutated by the magical energy being coursing through them and through the world and being turned into what are eventually called metahumans, the arisal, or in some cases, re-arisal, of the elves and the trolls and the orcs and all that. But I don't have anything to discuss there in particular. None of the elements of that really tickled me in a way that I feel that there's a discussion worth discussing. It's interesting, it's fascinating, but it, to me it feels like a really, really well-designed table, if that makes any sense. I don't have much to say about the table. It's what you put on the table that matters. And that's what I feel Shadowrun is, and why I hope that they do some good stuff with Shadowrun in the future. Now, it is also worth noting, I have not played... Uh, what is it, Hong Kong, and there's another one, I don't remember what it's called right now, but I haven't played the future Shadowrun stuff, and I'm told they added, you know, more, uh, more better, basically, that they made them better in every way, and, and I would like to have time someday, hopefully, yeah, right, to actually be able to play through those campaigns and see what they did with them, but... You, do you understand my presentation here? The setting is interesting as a launching point, but what's really going to engage me is what you do with it. Now, I do have one thing to talk about with it, and I'm going to go ahead and talk about this now, because it's kind of a setting thing more than a plot thing. And that thing is BTL. This game really hammers that nail down pretty hard. In fact, for the longest time, based on how much thematically and narratively the game was focused on BTL and its concepts and the people who are pushing it and the people who are victims of it and all that, that I thought that was going to be the main plot. It wasn't until uh, our first insect person showed up that I was like, oh, oh, okay, we're going that route with it. Because, of course, I know about the insect spirits in Chicago. So the moment I saw that, it just all just kind of clicked. I'm like, oh, right, okay, this is before Chicago. Gotcha. For those of you not aware, Chicago, Bug City, Insect Swarm, this whole thing happens there, too. Um... But I digress. So, the BTL thing. First of all, from a purely non-horrible perspective, the idea of this kind of personal holodeck is fascinating, and it's completely understandable why it would be so addictive, even if it was not artificially in engaging the pleasure centers of the brain, making it chemically addictive, you know? I've said this before, the holodeck, when you really boil it down, is magic. It, it should not work the way it does. It should not work anywhere near as well as it does. We all just kind of accept it because, yeah, okay, whatever. But a personal holodeck, and this came up as well in... 
Oh my god, I suddenly can't think of the name of the trilogy. I played through the trilogy earlier this year uh, for a series of ruminations. Dreamfall Chapters? That's the name of the third one, I think. Anyways, the Dreamfall series, whatever that's actually called. God, I can't think of the name of it. Um, I talked about this there as well, because there you have the thing where you just plug in and you go into the, hol the holodeck, but the holodeck's totally in your brain. That, to me, is something that makes more sense than a physical holodeck you can actually walk into. Less desirable, but easier to explain from a technological perspective. Now, the thing is, by all accounts, the way... And, I, and I'm not sure if this is how it is in the actual books or lore or whatever, but as it's presented in the game, the reason it's so effective is because they are recording actual brain input which they can then translate into your brain. In other words, it's not artificially generated. Everything they're showing you is recorded. That's where things get a little bit sticky, because whatever series you're going through has to be recorded first. That also means you don't really get to react or interact with it. I mean, there are mood BTL things, you know, the SimSense mood augmenter, which allows you to just feel happy, and that's it. That's, that's, there's nothing else done to you. But that's not what I'm talking about. For an actual interactive experience, well, it's not actually interactive. It's just a, it, it's like a hollow novel, except one step even further back from a hollow novel. It's basically a really advanced form of watching a movie when you boil it down. Now, of course, the, 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 the counterpoint here, as I just mentioned, is someone has to go and record that. So, if you want to record yourself running through and, <laughs> and gunning down a bunch of people, well, you see the problems already, right? Or if you want to record someone who's, you know, enjoying a nice, fine meal and dining, well, someone who has the money and affluence to do that has to agree to be a recording person for that. If you want to record anything about sex, well, you get the point. And that leads into how... This is one of the lines that was crossed for me in this game, because that is just really, really, really messed up, how people are literally being enslaved or chop-shopped, basically, Frankenstein together, to be ideal recording subjects in order to record whatever it is that is needed. And they flat-out say in the game that they do killing, like they will kill someone. And the thing is, you might be like, well, okay, that's pretty horrible, but I mean, you know, it's kind of par for the course. No, what I mean is recording the person being killed, not the person doing the killing. And then people can then go and experience being killed. <laughs> that's some uh, that's some dark Eldar stuff right there. And uh, I, I had to pause the game for a bit because that was that and several other things as we were going through the BTL thing was just just a little bit too much for me. Uh, Bunraku, that's actually the term I wrote it down here. They've got this Bunraku thing, you know, it's like, it, that's more of an official form of it, but the f fact remains, you know, hey, and in fact, it's really messed up. This, this, I'm just going to segue here. Let's talk about Silas. He's one of the only characters I feel was worth talking about. No offense to the characters in this game, actually. I feel a lot of the characters are, how do I put it, one-dimensional, but interestingly dimensional, if that makes any sense at all. You know, there's not really any depth here. And the narration done in the uh, in the actual text bubbles in the upper right corners they're talking is very well done. It feels straight out of a module. I'll build up to that point later. 
But I didn't feel like most of the characters were really noteworthy. I couldn't name just about any of them for you, except for Jake, of course, and Coyote. I liked her a lot. Uh, Dresden was awesome. And, of course, we did kill Steve Jackson in this game. It's hard to, it's hard to miss the fact that we killed Steve Jackson because he's, he's Steve Jackson. I, I, can't even, I don't even know how many Steve Jackson games I've played. Anyways, so, you know, I, I don't have a lot to say about most of the characters, but I do have a couple things to say about Silas because his case is interesting in three different ways to me. First of all, let me just go, actually, before I get into those three ways, let me just say the very first time I saw him, when he was looking over the scene of the crime, and I just happened to notice him, I looked at him, his his portrait, and I looked at his description, I was like, okay, he's the bad guy. Just guessed it right there. And lo and behold, I was about half right. <laughs> when I see him again, when we go, when we actually go to hunt down Holmes, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's you again. Yep, nope, called it. No surprise. Anyway, so the first thing I find interesting about him is he is someone who was mutated and became Elf, at least based on uh, his, his reports and the reports of the actual Holmes, during, you know, he was around during the Ascension. He was someone who got turned into this. And in the early days, people didn't really know what to do with this. They didn't know that someone has just been magically infused into being an Elf. Those concepts and terms hadn't really come up yet. All they see is a baby with deformities or a child with deformity, so we need to do something about this. And so he wasn't exactly taken care of in any particularly good manner. And that's the first part, because it's so understandable why so many people would be so messed up as a consequence of those early days, the, the upheaval. You know, I, I've often said when it comes to a societal level, progress is, is painful, progress is dangerous, but progress is something that happens on a curve. It happens gradually. Very, very rarely is it you know, net beneficial to slam someone in the face with progress or change because stuff like this happens. I mean, you could argue that this was an overall net positive thing. I'm sure that's heavily debatable, and I'm not as versed in the setting necessary to really go into that. But there's no denying that little people will get stuck in the cracks when you do something like this. People who aren't being hurt because of malice or because of some evil intent, it's because there's genuine ignorance on, on display here. I mean, it, rewind time a few centuries. It doesn't. You don't even have to go that far back to doctors who would kill their patients without meaning to or trying to because they only had very limited knowledge of medical history or, or concepts to use to try and cure their patients. You know, it's not hard to understand this kind of thing, especially if it was suddenly thrust upon you. All right, here's an elf. Well, you don't know what an elf is, and you don't know why an elf is, you just see a boy, right? Second thing I find interesting about him is that he's a very unique slice of character. He's a monster, right? Deranged, crazy, evil. We've seen that before. Now, I'm not saying that derisively. I don't demand every character be unique. I'm not one of those people who deride something simply because it's been done before. It's, all, it's nothing new under the sun, right? But what I do find interesting is that in this otherwise fairly typical Hojo-style character, if you will, he's doing it for money. <laughs> like, it's so ordinary. 
it's so normal. Like, as you're building up to finding this guy and learning about him, you think, oh, maybe he's getting ritual totems, or he's messed up, or he's twisted, and oh, well, he's doing it because it was for a job. Okay. Well, apparently everything he's been doing has been for a job. Huh. So, in other words, he is still twisted and messed up and evil and blah blah blah. But he's there's a there's a tone of banality added to him, of mundanity that just drags him down to the point of just approaching normal while still being this this monster. And it adds a wonderfully unique flavor to him that made him engaging for me. The third third and final reason I found him interesting was that he's He's the kind of character that I, I, I find myself pondering the core motivations of. I, obviously, I already discussed the modern motivations, but why did he take over the psychiatric realm? Why did he end up doing it? He, he gives his own explanation for this. He told me I could, I could be better. I could fix myself. And I did, you know, with pieces of him and blah, blah, blah. I don't know how much of that is him spinning yarn, though, or how much of that is legitimate. And I find myself curious if this is just a natural byproduct of someone who is so damaged in multiple ways from multiple sources when he was so young. I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, moving on now. Let me check my notes here. One thing I want to know about... <clears throat> excuse me. What the hell is up with the insect spirits? I, I actually went and did some digging into this, just into Shadowrun in general. And all I could find is that insect spirits are evil... Chicago, you know, all that. I already know about the Chicago thing, at least in brief. And um, how they operate. I know this sounds weird, but I feel like... It, the insect spirits don't gel with me. I, I don't know how better to explain this. I feel like they're just kind of thrust into the setting to have, you know, universal bad guys, right? You always got to have your your acceptable targets, right? You know, Nazis or stormtroopers or whatever. You know what I'm talking about, right? Darkspawn over in Dragon Age Origins or uh, uh, the Husks in Mass Effect. I hate to use two Bioware examples, but you know what I mean. A lot of works of fiction have this one thing that it's okay to hate them and it's okay to kill them and not feel bad about it because they're an acceptable target. I've talked about this concept before. And I feel like the only reason the insect spirits exist is to be an acceptable target. But unlike most acceptable targets, I have found almost no lore backing that up. It's just, they're there. They want to be here. The end. You know, they just want to expand into this world for whatever reason. I don't know. They never really worked for me. Um, also, they were extremely irritating to fight. I'm, I'm weirded out how much I'm talking about lore here. I didn't really intend to. I, it's because I'm kind of bouncing around my notes a little bit. I Literally half my page here is all gameplay notes. I suppose this is a good time to talk about the core combat mechanics. Now, as I said, the last time I played Shadowrun was... Oh, jeez, it would have been about 2003, 2004, something like that. Uh, maybe? God, I, I'm not even sure about that. I think that's about right. It would have been before 2005, but after 2002. So somewhere in that range was the last time I sat down and played pen and paper Shadowrun. And the... I, I don't know if any of that was subconsciously in me or not when I was deciding the Magasan rule set, which is the rule set, I my own custom rule set I developed uh, primarily for Primus, but also for any other games I run. But I mention this because there's one idea this game does that I love, that I myself implemented in the Magasan rule set. And that would be the 
unique form of AP usage. Now, plenty of games do AP usage. You know, Fallout does the AP thing. You know, Divinity Original Sin, I just mentioned it, does the AP thing. But that's not what I mean. In those games, you have, like, a pool of AP, and then, like, this action costs three, or this action costs two, or whatever. In this system, it's pared down a little bit more. You have two AP, and movement is an action, or attacking is an action, or casting is an action. That's the exact same rule set I use for, for Primus, for, for the magazine rule set. And it just immediately clicked with me, because in addition to the fact that my own setting works like that, or my own rules work like that, it makes sense to me. It's kind of like, okay, basically what I, what I find myself sitting and doing is saying, I have two things I can do this turn. So if I want to reposition way over there, that's going to be far enough, it's going to take double move to do it. So I'm going to do that. Or, you know, I'd really like to shoot this guy and then get back under cover. You know, it's basically the same thing that XCOM does, which I'm also, which also makes perfect sense in my head, except uh, with slightly less rules involved. Because, you know, XCOM has the whole, you shoot, you're under turn, unless you have the right talents and certain gear can change, I don't know, all that fun stuff. But... I like it. I like that system. It was very easy and intuitive to understand, which leads me very smoothly to my next point. Without ever having to... I had to look up something twice in this game. I can tell you both instances. When I was trying to infiltrate the warehouse, I had to look up where to find the ladder because of something I'll talk about in a second. And uh, when I was in the... I guess this would be the third to last zone, dungeon, whatever you want to call it, I was stuck. I couldn't figure out how to go forward. And then what ended up happening is I had to go back a full room, wait for two full turns there before some guy bust through the wall, and that would then be my way to leave. Two times I got stuck in this game. Now, you might be like, oh, that's a well-done campaign. But what I mean by that is usually when I get stuck, it's because I'm missing something or because I don't understand how I can do something. I mean, okay, I shouldn't say it that way. I usually get stuck on really stupid things. Anybody who's seen me stream probably can attest to that. But usually that tends to be the kind of thing, in my experience, that's a UI flaw. The fact that everything just made so much sense and I could immediately divine what to do and where like that in this game is part of what I'm praising. The UI design is very simple, but flows beautifully. At no point did I find myself thinking, oh, how do I equip this? How do I change up my cyberware? How do I use this ability? No, I never had that kind of question the entire game. That's what I mean by being stuck twice. I was never stuck wondering how to reload, or trying to figure out how to move right, or trying to optimize my route, or anything like that. Anything that might happen in a game with a worse UI. So I have huge, huge praise for that. It's probably the thing I would praise most about this game in overall, in terms of a gameplay perspective. I also love the amount of writing in this game. Uh, this, it's actually kind of weird, because this game is basically writing and combat, and or excuse me, reading, I should say, and combat, and that's it. Like, that's the gameplay. You know, no real exploration of any significant sort, no real, uh, like, story arcs or branching whatevers. It's just reading, combat. Not complaining, by the way. I'll talk about why. I'm still building up to this point. So, lots of dialogue. Lots of reading, I should say. A whole bunch of it. I like the... F I already mentioned the little GM tips in the upper right. I also like the loading screens narration thing. 
while there's something I found was a little bit of a flaw of that, which I'll talk about next, I did like the fact that every loading screen in the entire game was setting up the next scene. Um, to use a really old analogy, it's like when you're sitting down at the play and the people are, you know, the, the lights fade in the background and, and the, the uh, oh god, uh, stagehands? I can't think of the term all of a sudden. The, the grips, there we go. The grips are quickly changing around the set and someone comes up there and says, Blah, 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 you know, and now we find ourselves in the eastern city of Terveria, which is, and they set the scene. That's what it felt like it was happening to me. Now, of course, I know what the intent was, which is not the theatrical thing I inclined. The intent is to feel like the GM has opened up the book and is like, all right, so now you find yourself at the eastern city of Terveria as you get out of the, you know, blah, blah, blah. It sets the scene, right? I liked that, and I found myself enjoying reading those. I also liked how the dialogue options don't change anything except for everyone else's attitude towards you and your character. This is something I used to praise about a lot of games, actually. Uh, Baldur's Gate, uh, Neverwinter Nights, Dragon, Dragon Age. The idea that you don't have a truly branching story. You're not completely deciding the fate of things or altering paths or anything like that. But what you're doing is you're deciding the flavor of you. Role-playing, in other words. In other, to put this in slightly different terms, it is possible, and some games have failed to understand how to do this probably, Fallout 4, excuse me, to have a quest and you have four options, or ideally six is actually my personal uh, ideal number, but let's go ahead and say four options. And all four options are yes, but have them be different flavors of yes. Have them el elucidate the type of personality your character is and allow you to role-play. And this kept happening. Usually there's actually three options in this game. It's like, all right, you can be a dick. You can be snarky, but, you know, trying to be witty. You can be helpful and polite. And those were generally the three options. Occasionally another option would come up where you could just be straight up all about the money, no-nonsense business professional, you know, that kind of a thing. But you could decide the kind of runner you were as you were going through it. And I like that. Now, I said I'd talk about this next, so I will. Let's talk about the missiony-ness of the game. I don't have a better term for this. I spent almost my entire playthrough of the game. I got to the last dungeon, and I was still trying to put a finger on what it felt like. It's very missiony. Now, what I mean by that is there's no real hub. No, there isn't. Think about it. There's no hub. There's no world map. There's no exploration. There's no zones. There are missions. Even the, when you go back to the, uh, the Seamstress's Union, even when you go back there, that is another mission. You have a certain number of objectives to obtain and to accomplish, and once you're done, you leave the mission. The only thing that makes that place different is it has more recurring NPCs you can talk to and vendors. But otherwise, functionally, it's still another mission. Just like every map in the game is. And it left me feeling weird. And at first I didn't like it, to be completely blunt. Like, it first drops you out and you're out in the street. Oh, cool. And then you go into the, the bar. Okay, cool. And then you go out and you, like, warp to the next spot. And I'm like, huh? And that's how it works. Each time you finish a mission, you warp to the next mission. It would be like playing Final Fantasy Tactics if there was no overworld map and no in-between. Like, you just go straight from one mission to the next. That's that's what I mean by mission-y. It's very mission-y. You know? Help me out here, guys. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I'm, I'm a professional ruminator and I, I come up with terms like missiony. Anyways. And at first I didn't like it because it felt like it was taking me out of it. It felt like I was playing a game. And I know that sounds stupid, but I'll, uh, people like to bandy about the words immersion and immersive and all that crap. And I feel like too many people who do that are looking in the wrong directions or just saying it to, to say it because it's a nice word to say and because you know, we must have the most immersive. When I say the word immersive, when I'm playing a game that's... that's I'll use a recent example, Divinity Original Sin 2. At no point did I sit back and think, I'm playing a game. That that mentality never came into it. Instead, it was more like I was experiencing an adventure. And I know that sounds really stupid, but that is how it felt to me. Instead of... It's the difference between playing The Legend of Zelda and Tetris. Now, I want to state this clearly because this is not an insult. Neither of these are bad games, right? Both of these are games that are good and enjoyable. But one of them, you're playing a game. It's a puzzle thing. Da, na, 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 na. And the other one, you're like, oh, God, I wonder what's around that next rock. And maybe I should go, oh, shoot. Right? You know what I'm talking about. I bet money you do. And this felt like I was playing a game. And so, like I said, early on, I'm like, I don't really like this. It took a bit for it to really kick in for me. And it made something else make so much more sense. Something I've been trying to put a finger on as well. And as soon as I realized they were both the same thing, it just, aha! This, and I said this already, I kind of led with this. This feels like Shadowrun the game, rather than Dead Man Switch the campaign. As soon as I realized that this was the game of Shadowrun, and this just happened to be a module in Shadowrun, that just made it all make so much more sense. And I found myself getting into it more because now my, my, my perspective has shifted a little bit over here. And now I'm looking at it like, you know, Bob over there you know, is, is, is GMing. He's looking, he's got his book. He's like, all right, you come out of this area. Uh, let's see. You enter the place. Uh, it smells nicely, uh, a little bit too nicely. The, the warm buzz. And he's reading the description and then Obviously, because it's a module, it's nice and linear, but it's still fun. Because at that point, it becomes more about the interactions with the characters, the development of the plot, and the gameplay itself. And as soon as I pared away any other expectations or beliefs of what I was getting into and focused on those three things, I started having fun with it. Make no mistake, I very much enjoyed this game, with one exception. Um, and I suppose I'll talk about that now. The insect spirits are bullcrap. <laughs> I remember distinctly, I was actually complaining about this on my Discord while I was fighting four insect spirits at once. And they were the, the, the physical forms. And obviously I had Harlequin and myself, right? We have our insect killing guns that can kill their spirit forms. We have to kill them and run rounds, or else they go back to physical form and we have to start the process over again. So I have to make sure that I am out of cover and right up on top of these things when they die so that I am in position with ammo reloaded because I need three shots in order to kill them, and I have four. 
If I miss two shots, I have just lost that kill. Did I mention that even despite being in melee range, and with a very high quickness stat on my main character, I basically went with pure rifle as soon as I realized what I was playing. I'll talk about that in a minute. But as soon as, you know, right in melee range, with these things, 86% chance was the highest I could ever get my hit chance. And just like XCOM, that is just not enough. And so more than once, I found myself whiffing, and then it would reload, and I'd have to do the whole thing over again, and using my other two runners, j focusing on them to keep everything else distracted or trying to lower their health so next turn I could do the thing. And it just became a chore after a while. It got to the point where when I was fighting the actual last boss, Jessica, I just completely ignored all of the insects and focused on her in the hopes that I would be able to avoid you know, having to go through that rigmarole. I was wrong. I had to kill them anyways, and I, I nearly lost uh, Harlequin on that because because he's a melee. <laughs> he's got a sword when he's not, you know, shooting bugs. Oh, and the fact that they only give me two of those damn things. I mean, at least give me four or give me more ammo. Something. It was irritating, and the whole thing just felt like a slog. And that's something I want to comment on as well, because I had this impression early on. And it stayed through right up until I invaded the Insect Swarm. Games like this, my usual biggest complaint is either too much combat or not significant enough combat, depending on it goes. I've talked about this concept before. Uh, it was my biggest complaint about Wasteland 2. Tons of trash fights, but each trash fight takes time and effort to go through, so it becomes boring after a while. You know, it, it, I like the idea of every fight being significant. That's a, that's a design philosophy I strongly agree with, and I try to do in my own games as well. D&D, obviously, but if I were to design video games, I would focus on that mentality as well. So I don't mind a fight being significant. You know, you having to actually put all this effort into fighting a, a couple of, of rats or, or poison plant things or whatever, I'm with that. But then don't have, like, five of those fights in a row before I get to the next NPC, right? Anyways, this game did that very well. You know, it'd be like, fight! Okay, and now we have some dialogue and some talking and running to the next zone and enter the next mission area and do some more dialogue and more talking. And then fight! You know. It felt like they were spread out enough so that the significance of each fight was elevated and I didn't feel bored. I didn't feel like I was like, oh, come on, going through these fights. The only time I felt that way was in the last dungeon, or rather, I guess the last three missions, which is just the, the push through the insect hive. And yes, I know that, of course, an insect hive is going to have a bunch of enemies. I still feel like, from a purely gameplay perspective, it, it, it didn't make it feel like I was, you know, oh, damaging my way through to get to the queen. It felt like I was, oh, hang on, come on. Like I said, it didn't, it wasn't interesting. It was boring. Though that is just my opinion. And of course, that's one of my very few real complaints about this game. Possibly my only real complaint about this game, really. <sighs> um, gosh, what else? I like the, I am told that originally when this game went out, there was no quick save, which I actually, uh, didn't use quick save except for once. And in that one instance, it actually turned out to be a, a mistake, and I, then I found out about the rewind feature, which is a weird thing, actually, because the rewind feature is nice, but what I don't get is why it's not just a load feature. I mean, you already have all those autosaves, why not just keep them in the load menu? It feels like an unnecessary step, but whatever. Anyways, it's still there. Um, <clears throat> I mentioned the cyberpunk thing. Let me, let me reiterate that for a second. 
there was a bit, uh, there was a great mission, probably my, no, absolutely my favorite mission, is when I was invading, oh god, what's their names? <laughs> the Tower of the Dudes that start with T. Telestrians, there it is, I knew I wrote it down. Invading the Telestrian Tower. Uh, this is the first invasion, the, the militant one. And I'm at the top floor, and I have to go hack this thing. And so I've got one person jacked in, and the other three people trying to hold them, hold off everything else. And the dynamic of going back and forth between the three people fighting the, the meat space battle and the one person fighting the cyberspace battle was actually really cool and awesome and fun. And I, I did a whole bunch, it, I, it was, it was interesting. It was engaging. It was a fight that was significant, and I had to use very careful tactics to get through, and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I liked that. I liked going through that. I, I enjoyed that immensely. But I wanted to share a quick story really quick. It's the only story I thought was fun to share, because my cyberspace guy is going through, and then I see something pop up, and I'm like, what the hell is that? It was something I hadn't seen before in cyberspace. So I mouse over, and it says, Black IC. My first reaction is, oh, God, it's Black Ice. Because I've played Cyberpunk. <laughs> and it comes over and hits me, and sure enough, I take damage, and my IP thing, you know, my IP instead of my HP, doesn't go down. I'm like, yep, nope. So I immediately have to pull someone off of the actual fight in Meat Space, run over and use a med pack on the guy, because he had just been... <laughs> from having been hit by the Black Ice. It was a fun battle, and I just wanted to share that, because I liked how the dynamic between the two sides is exactly what it should be for a Shadowrun game or a you know a cyberpunk game for in, in a similar vein. <sighs> um I already mentioned the AP thing. One of the things I like that they did is they give you that third AP. I don't know if there's it's built into the system to be able to give you more than three AP, but that was awesome. Because to me that felt like the moment at which you had officially learned the game. Now we're now we're giving you the tools to do whatever. A lot of games do this. In fact, virtually every RPG out there slowly develops, you know, gives you more tools over time to be able to do more things in combat. I mean, my favorite example to go with this is Kingdom Hearts 1. I know a lot of you probably haven't played that game, but at the beginning you can swing and jump, and that's it. Two tools in your arsenal. Yeah! And it's just a basic swing, too. Not the reach swing, not the kind that'll dash forward, anything like that, just a basic swing and a jump. But as you level, you know, if you, if you go towards the end of the game, like a level 40 or whatever, and you see the huge arsenal of things you can do in combat, you're like, oh, this is awesome. Most games do that sort of gradual progression thing, but I felt that Shadowrun just kind of unloaded on you with that third AP. Because you already had access to you know, guns, drones, uh, magic, the totems, the summons, the buffs, um... Uh, God, I don't even know what else. All of this stuff. When I say sum summon separate from totems, I mean, there's the ones you buy, and then there's the ones where, like, hey, there's a ley line over there, and I'm just going to turn that into a spirit. That's what I meant. Um, you already had access to all these options. The third AP lets you use them. Because previous to now, you have two AP, and you have to be really efficient with your movements, because it's generally going to be move, shoot, or shoot, shoot. But now with that third AP, you can move, Shoot, cast, move, buff, shoot, move, move, buff. The third AP was such a game changer for me. And I felt that was a brilliant way to unlock and allow more choice. More player choice when it came to the combat. And frankly, if it wasn't for that, I probably would have gotten bored uh, before I got to the last dungeon with regards to the combat. 
Uh, what else? I'm looking at my notes now. I've just been kind of talking for a bit here. What do we got? Uh, the modular zones, I already mentioned that. Uh, GM blurbs, the AP, which was awesome. Silas, I already talked about that. Poor Steve Jackson. Um, gosh, I've already talked about most of what I have to say about this game. How weird. I do have to say, Jessica, I suspected her immediately. Because, and I wrote down my specific reasons. I'm going to list these to you word for word. There was the lack of interest in what was what I was doing and investigating. The fact that she got frustrated with me for, and I was being nice and polite, by the way. That was that was me the whole playthrough. I was very nice, very cultured, very nice, you know. Um, so she got really frustrated with me. Then she tried to talk me out of this. Then she flat out lied to me about what what was going on. Then, the second time I meet her, it took me maybe two dialogues to get her to instantly confess to everything. Not exactly a master criminal here. But I'm not saying that's a negative. Because if anything, and I know this is probably me giving too much credit to the game, or the writers, but if anything, I feel like that just, that just helps to add to the setting I mentioned earlier. This is a world in which someone like her could get away with this very easily. The only thing that gets in the way of that is someone like me. I happened, by coincidence, to be on this case. And so, by uh, because I was coincidentally on this case, I got in the way and figured it out. Because anybody who was actually on the case and motivated to stay on the case would have figured it out pretty quickly. None of them were really covering their tracks all that well. Why would they be? There's no need to. And that's my point. Who, honestly, is going to care about one dead guy in the street, right? And yet... Now this I'm pretty sure I can credit the writers, because there was one thing thematically that I kept noticing throughout the game. People aren't disgustingly horrible. No, hear me out. Obviously there's the scum with the BTL crap. Just, just absolute garbage. Ugh. Drecks of humanity. who we'll all need to be geeked. But... Almost every NPC with a name who you meet more than once, so any recurring NPC is, at the very least, has redeeming qualities or has things or people, usually people, that they care about. And I wrote down a couple of them here. Uh, Kubota, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name, Kubota, Kubota, the, the, lead, the head of the seamstresses uh, union. She obviously cares about her people, legitimately cares. In fact, when I brought back Coyote, and Kefka went racing on by, <sighs> Kefka, I swear to God, when I brought back Coyote, she was like, oh, I got him out of your pay. And the moment Coyote left, she just was like, oh, God, thank you so much for bringing her back. And I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. Because, again, I was being the polite, nice guy. It's okay, I got, I got your back, I understand. You know, Cherry? Cherry had her ex-boyfriend, and while Cherry is kind of a consummate liar, uh, based on the the GM text, I'm pretty sure she was legit devastated when she found out that her boyfriend had been... Yeah. Uh, gone. And then, of course, uh, Samdi is another excellent uh, example of this with uh, Mary Louise, or whatever her name was. And those are the only ones I wrote down, but there are several examples of this throughout the course of the game. And you yourself can come off, come across that way to Sam. Oh, and of course, Jake can come across that way to you, depending on how you deal with him and how you interact with him. I like that. I like the simple humanity of it. Usually, when a fictional work is set in a hellhole, uh, like most cyberpunk works are, that hellhole is treated as if it's a hellhole from ground to top, right? 
like at every level. There, you've got your evil corporate executives, and then you've got your evil corporate middlemen, and then you've got your evil enforcers, and then you've got your evil gang leaders, and then you've got your evil gang enforcers. It just go all the way down to even the people on the street would stab you just to be able to get you know another burger or whatever, right? It was interesting to me to see so many relatively decent people throughout the course of this game. People who were just mundane. Going through their everyday lives because to them this is everyday life. And I like that. It, and yes, I'm tying this deliberately back into the Silas thing. It added a layer of believability to a world in which, you know, cyberpunk and magic coexist that I think was sorely needed and is probably, I very much suspect, was done deliberately because you need that kind of believability layer when you're adding two basically high fantasy concepts and mashing them together like that. Two completely fantastical things, well, let's ground it a little bit, right? Last thing I want to talk about here, uh, as I'm looking at my notes here, it uh, looks like I have a couple other things to talk about, but uh, last thing I really want to talk about is, is the Shadowrunners themselves. Now, I've always liked settings that take player characters and turn them into an occupation that is a part of either an industry or an economy or just in the infrastructure of the world. Uh, some settings do this with Guardians. I, I've done this myself with Guardians in some of my own works. Um, some settings do this with adventurers. Uh, Faerun is an excellent example of a, an entire world in which most of the economy sits and functions based on adventuring. A lot of science fiction settings tend to use freelancers for this kind of thing. Star Wars itself has a lot of freelancing going on in it. Uh, Star Citizen, of course, uh, freelancer itself, you know. Here we have the Shadowrunners. And I think what I like about this is the Shadowrunners, like the freelancers and the adventurers, fit into this setting specifically. In other words, it would be easy to just say, you know, the people who run around and get things done are the PCs. But at that point, they're just adventurers, which is basically the, the base default level of player character. Adventurers, right? But here, the whole point of a Shadowrunner isn't just that you get things done. It's that you get things done in a certain way, off the, off the grid, off the network, right? You don't have the ID chip. You're in the shadows. That's the whole point of being a Shadowrunner. And I just really dug that, and I really got into that mentality as I was going through it, of being the person who slips through the cracks, that you could be hired by locals or by you know guards or by the police or by the corporations or whatever, because there's lots of use for people who aren't going to be official but can still get things done. I love that presentation. Glancing at my notes here, I already said the last dungeon thing. Eh. Um... Yeah, I don't, I don't really have much else to add. I do find the story, one last note, one truly last note, and then I'm done. Uh, I wrote down just the words Neverwinter Nights there, because I was reminded a lot, as I was playing through this game, of Neverwinter Nights vanilla, as in, you know, the base campaign. I don't mean that in any way as an insult, but if you remember, that campaign also started pretty low tier, and then escalated and then escalated until we were dealing with something that was at the very least a regional level threat, which, let's be honest, that's about as high level as anything in Faerun ever gets, because Faerun's pretty high tier. So, I felt the same way in this one. You know, we start off, okay, he's been killed, alright. 
Well, let's find out about this. Oh, there's a serial killer. Okay, let's find the serial killer. Nope, he was hired as part of something else. Okay, there's a cult. Okay, the cult is, is a little more connected than I thought they were. Okay, the cult are summoning insect spirits, and so forth and so on. It's, it's a very classic RPG example of standard escalation, and they layer it nicely. It's not like you just kind of are, are doing this because you have to, or, or out of the goodness of your heart. At every point in time when you're involved in this, you can either say, nope, I'm out. Well, I, I shouldn't say that, because obviously you can't because it was a game. But the point is, you if you would be inclined to be of that mentality, the dialogue option is, I'm getting a big fat paycheck for doing this. Remember, 100,000 yuan was being, or I have no idea how I'm pronouncing that right, 100,000 money was going to be gifted to you if you pulled this off, or at least that's what you think the whole time, although to be blunt, I never believed that for a second, because that's a lot of frickin' cash. I didn't get that much money my entire playthrough. <laughs> so, the, the point being, it was well-constructed escalation. I think that's the nicest way to put that. I don't think I really have anything else to share. This is a fun game. I look forward to seeing more of it in the future. I hope you enjoyed. I'll see you next time.